I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. This is part two of two in our coverage of the Wendigo phenomena. Before you hear the rest of our chat with author and researcher Chad Lewis, Morgan will lay out more about the Wendigo, that mythological, often evil, and cannibalistic spirit which originates from the folklore of the indigenous peoples of North America. Here's Morgan Knudsen. The more fear one has of anything, the more a vibrational match to the thing that they fear they are. Help your child discover that if she makes things that are potentially frightening to her a non-issue, then they don't bother her. Abraham Hicks, 2001. As investigators, my partner and I had no awareness of the goings-on in Egg Lake or St. Albert. It may as well have been another world in another time and place. In 2004, Stephanie and I held a lecture in Edmonton, Alberta. We were lecturing on an English folklore story known as the Black Shuck, a gigantic black dog with fiery paws said to terrorize the English countryside. It was just by chance. Someone was in our audience that night who we would be tied to for the rest of our lives. His name was Matt Spearin, and as he heard our lecture, the description of the black, aggressive dog stuck out to him in a way that touched no one else. After the lecture, he told us about his encounter as a child with a giant black beast and an illness that nearly resulted in his death. An illness with facial swelling, a fire-like rash on his hands and feet, and a monster coming through his window at night. Matt described the encounters in detail. Don't touch that. It might be Cujo. My hand pauses for a moment over the half-buried G.I. Joe, lost to a late-fall sandbox mission, and then under the previous winter's ice. What's Cujo? I asked. The name sends a chill down my spine. Cujo is this big, scary dog that goes bad and it kills all these kids, said my neighbor Alex, with the authority and demure of a seven-year-old over his now mystified four-year-old audience. My blood runs cold over his very words, and over the name, it actually has a name, and this guy knows it. I'm speechless, transfixed. I only told my parents and my nana about that dumb dog. How, how, do, you, how do you know about it? How do you know what it's called? If you're not careful... He's going to come for you tonight and take you right out of your bed, he said gleefully. He, he, he comes every night, I tell him, as the smile melts from his chin into a look of puzzlement. Right, right through my window, I continue. He shakes my bed off the floor, growling and snarling. He comes from that lonely J-train yard on Sesame, as tall as my house and thin with really long spindly arms, weird black spider fingers... His head looks like a wicked terrier. You know, like the dogs with the beards, but with wild, terrifying eyes and sharp, pointy ears. He's way scarier. He's way bigger. It's a giant. It's a monster. No, Cujo's just a dumb movie I saw, he tells me, attempting to enliven the sudden abnormal hue his friend's face had just taken on. You don't see him. He comes when you get really hot and when you can't move in your bed. I, I, I can't even yell for my mom. It's that scary. 
Wait till you hear it growl, I inform him. It sounds like there are a thousand of him that growl. I, I bet he comes for you tonight. Right through your window, you're gonna see. My tone is serene, convicted, the voice of a true believer. That's my window right there, pointing up to the brown frame, eight feet from the ground, embedded in white stucco. Cujo passes this yard every night, and now he knows who you are. He knows where you play, and he's... He knows you live right across the street. You're just saying that. You're just making this up, he said with a pallid, almost teary look of a kid who had just had someone piss all over his grave. So Cujo is what it's called, I reflect, thinking a name like that made more sense than what I'd had for breakfast that morning. It was hitting a nail on the head like a bullseye and driving it right through the board. J-Train could jump right into that name and fit like some unholy marriage. Cujo, you want to stay over? I ask. In a small house in Brayside, St. Albert, a haunting was happening. Bought in the late 1970s, a man moved his wife and two children into a home with a basement that he purchased for a very low price. The family selling the property had suffered the horrible loss of their child in a vicious accident and, desperate to move on from the memories, sold the house at a low rate. It wasn't long before the new owners began experiencing some strange happenings. They would hear their back door open and slam shut, and the sound of distinct feet running down the steps on multiple occasions. The toilet would flush on its own. The dog would growl at the basement stairs. On many afternoons, their daughter came home to the sound of someone crying in the house. Fearful to enter, she waited on the porch until someone arrived, only to find no one had been inside. The first apparition was sighted during a dinner party. A woman with long black hair was seen crying in the dining room. When the witness asked the family about the sad figure, the family told them that no one matching that description had been at the party or was invited. While sitting in the basement proofreading homework for her son, the mother assumed he had returned home from the grocery store, slamming the back door and running down the stairs into the room behind her. But she felt a presence and began to go over the mistakes with him. However, when no one responded, she suddenly realized, to her horror, she was alone. While they were on vacation, the family's grandfather decided to stay to keep an eye on the house. After one night, he refused to return to sleep or to talk about it stating only that something was wrong with the basement there. The once skeptical old man would only enter the house during the day, returning home at night until the family came back. One afternoon, during a visit from their nephew, Matt, another strange incident occurred. Seated in the dining room, the well-built glass table split in front of them and shattered to the floor with no explanation. Having had more than enough, the family decided to follow a Scottish tradition that involved moving across a river to escape nasty spirits, they left the house behind. During the move, Matt was admitted to ICU at the Edmonton General after a visit to his aunts. A fever had started on the car ride home, throwing him into deadly convulsions. As he resided in a croupette for over 10 days, the doctors could find no explanation for the strange illness. Within a month of coming home, the situation grew worse. Severe swelling of his tongue and hands and eyes would frequently occur resulting in many trips to the emergency ward. Like the source of the fever, the edema proved just as evasive, resulting in an array of inconclusive allergy tests. And all this time, an unwelcome presence had begun to make itself known. A creature was coming into his room at night, through the window. The red curtains would part by themselves, 
The blind would shoot to the roof, and then it would attack an anthropomorphic dog-like monster, tall, frail, but incredibly strong, with dark, patchy, wool-like fur. Its upper torso and long, spider-like arms would burst through the window frame over his bed, growling, scratching, violently shaking him. The demonic, Scottish-like terrier head, always an inch from his face so that Matt could feel the breath on his cheek. The attacks became so frequent that when it didn't show one Christmas Eve, he was elated. His parents were worried. Their son repeatedly came to them with stories of terrifying encounters, and all they could do was reassure him that it must be a frightening nightmare. Nonetheless, the attacks continued. His mother, concerned for her son's well-being, began guarding his room at night, marking her papers beside his door so that he could fall asleep in peace. She moved a little further down the hall each night in hopes of weaning him off the fear. His father tried vigorously to rationalize the encounters and bring some calm to his family's obvious distress, but the solutions were never permanent. Night after night, Matt's childhood disappeared into endless hours of fear and terror. With no end in sight, and no understanding of what the horror actually was, could his parents be right? Was this werewolf-like monster the result of a dream? During one encounter, Matt made physical contact with the entity, kicking it hard in the face. It reacted strongly and disappeared back out the locked bedroom window as if slipping through a veil of air. One evening, things took a turn no one was anticipating. Matt awoke to discover a new apparition, small with gaunt, round, terrifying eyes. No bigger than a house cat, it was perched on unearthly feet at the end of his bed, beneath the curtains. The encounter seemed to surprise them both, and the rage of the face of the creature was something that still sticks with Matt to this day. And he describes, At the foot of my bed, beneath the curtains, stood a tiny woman. I will never forget that image, forever remembering that moment feeling the shock resonate into my core, like being punched from inside my ribcage. No dream, no sleep, no darkness, just alive, senses ablaze to the light above and temporal lobes attuned to the horror of the thing below. She appeared unaware of my gaze as she scanned the room, and a thrill moment about her tiny shoulders, grapefruit-sized head, distant and listening. No more than two feet tall, the face and constitution akin to First Nations folklore, long, black, wild hair about the crown and her complexion and gaze the colour of death. I watched the brown body, closed in unusual rings, foreign but familiar, like a flight suit faded into banded burial wrappings or something like a Baroque clown attire. Far away through time, tattered and malignant, the image made me feel sick. I glanced quickly at her feet and something between terror and amazement gripped me, Three taloned toes, like misshapen starfish, adorn the bottoms of her legs. Carefully attuned to the eerie sway of her body atop my mattress, she was taking long, heavy breaths, drawing air into a set of lungs that couldn't be larger than halved apricots. Long draws, deep, unaccustomed, an atypical mixture. This wasn't her usual playground. I gasped in terror, and the sound traveled like a knock at the door. She saw me, and for that moment... Those ancient, pupil-filled eyes beheld me, pulling me through some pin-sized black hole. For a second, she saw who I was, and then she charged. The movement display was analog. Something in the shimmer reminded me of film, like a hologram, a halo. It seemed to bend light as she moved, but only the warm components, 
hitting beats in the mobility spectrum that no human ever could. In mere seconds, she was upon me, and I could feel her revolting breath against my lips. From within, a hiss uncoiled itself like a snake, revealing fangs, canines and incisors jutting from a wicked effigy that was her skull. The face, a sickly, jaundiced flesh, to pink, swollen protuberances on her forehead and cheek. She bore pure hatred there, unfiltered, unabated, and with those eyes, those eyes, black oil pools, flaring red to some invisible spectral candle in front of them. A piece of innocence died forever then. And there, as she struck the palm of my hand beside my face, I recoiled in terror at the blow, watching the swinging appendage, her hand, a weird chimera of a badger's claw and a pig-like hoof. And then, with a cornered black cat growl, she turned and fled into the night, back towards whatever sanctity the window world provide, that back to that unholy altar above my bed. I watched her legs bound out from the sides as she ran, propelling at the hip, and terror filled me in one second like a sea of confusion. As she leapt up to the frame behind the curtain, the light responded to the spectrum flare as her body became a living film, projecting the ultimate perversion. I watched the familiar brown diamond ringed pattern shimmer across the surface, covering something hard, breast brown, the sense of time, some lobster-like exoskeleton beneath. And then she was gone. She was gone. And the pain in my hand remained, like the lingering taste of oil. I was wide awake. Matt's head was spinning with questions. What was this bizarre new creature? Was it related to the dog monster that came at night? He had no idea. But it was only one of many puzzle pieces that had begun to unfold. A series of bizarre images and events that would not even begin to make sense for decades. Eventually, these things were filed into a pile of bizarre encounters in his head that Matt simply could not understand. Eventually, the encounter seemed to stop. The family had made an energetic stand. A victim will get a restraining order as a peaceful measure, but an abuser will see it as an act of war. A year and a half later, Matt returned to St. Albert. His family decided to go for a walk, which led them up the hill to a historical building, the oldest standing wood building in Alberta, and through a beautiful cemetery. The aged structure, which stood next to a lovely old church, was a mission. It stood just meters from its original location on the land, and it was well-maintained. Matt's aunt's home in Brayside was barely a drive down the road, beside the Sturgeon River. They walked through the cemetery. Not one of them had any clue of the history upon which they now tread. They had no idea that Swift Runner had once walked the river's edge after murdering his entire family, banging on the door of the mission that they were now visiting. They had no idea that it was there that Swift Runner lied to the missionaries who helped him, that he had just murdered his last child and he was now fat with the meat of his entire family. They had no idea that Swift Runner awoke here, night after night, screaming that the Wendigo, the evil spirit that devours, was violently attacking him every night in his sleep. Matt was older now and had not seen the beast at his window for over a year. Big kids didn't have nightmares. It was past all that. The family had supper at a local fast food restaurant and went home, but Matt's night was far from over. Matt explained the following. The heat had compelled him 
on our return from the mission grounds, pulling him up from the gravestones on the rising of the storm waves. For a moment, I watched his true form outside, through older eyes, as if the color of the moon had stumbled there. And then he burst through the frame with the lightning of wild horses and with the swelling of a storm cloud rise. The attack was upon me like a pack of wild dogs. We wrestled to daybreak, a violent rocking fury that seemed to set the room ablaze. My closed fist driving repeatedly into living myth and into the coarse fur and emaciated rib-like structures pressed against my face. He fought from above, writhing and shivering in some orgy of terror, the demonic sounds bouncing back and forth across the surfaces like music. And in the victory, he made killers or killed, and my victory was resistance, embracing my outer demon, refusing to let him go, hurling him back on my terms towards the window. In my mind, and through my pain, I part the storm before me, like curtains to the rays of golden sunrise, endless white, forever light, poplar fluff at ease, and the weightless to the raging hail surrounding it. The Wendigo did not raise its head again until Matt was in its 30s. By then, we had known each other for over a decade and had been developing Entity Seeker paranormal research and teachings to its fullest potential for quite a few years. Being asked for speaking engagements, investigating cases, and gracing stages and television screens across Canada. One night, while listening to a podcast on native mythos, the word Wendigo fell on his ears. The tale of Swift Runner was being discussed, and names and dates became the main topic of conversation. St. Albert, the mission, attacks at night by dog-like beasts, facial swelling, a fever, red rashes on the hands and feet, and the location of Swift Runner's crime scene, Egg Lake. His mind began replaying the visions of his childhood, and the Easter egg images flooded back to him. It was not long into investigating the new information before his father gave him a startling revelation. His grandmother was born in Legal, a short distance up the road from Lake Manawan, or the place of the eggs, formerly known as Egg Lake. Swift Runner's home and the site of the gruesome slaughter of his family. It was a connection that neither of us expected. Wendigo, or the case of Swift Runner, had not been prevalent in our investigations. Although both of us had heard the tale, when and where it took place wasn't something of which we had ever taken note. To realize it was something that happened within a 20 minute drive from us was a bit of a shock, to say the least. We were on the doorstep of one of the greatest crimes in Alberta history, and we had no idea. Matt and I began an in-depth look into his own encounters and other accounts of similar attacks. Some pieces made sense, others were missing. If these weren't nightmares, what were they? What was the strange, rageful entity at the end of his bed? Interestingly, people who have come close to death often experience a flood of sigh or paranormal activity close to the incident. It can last for days afterwards or even a lifetime. Did the fever that racked Matt's small body influence his ability to receive information far beyond his understanding? We realized that something incredible had taken place here and there were lessons to be learned. This was not a case about a specific photo or recording. It was an example of energetic warfare and the importance of two things, a family staying united and the necessity of empowering our children. Bizarre dreams involving the Sturgeon River opened up a series of new questions. Matt reported a vivid recollection in which he saw three distinct wooden poles near the river on a notably hot autumn night. The first he described as a pine shaved of bark and sporting across inked in blood across the face. 
The second was a familiar shape, but it hung on an Arabian-style lamp, seemingly made from glass in the shape of a terrier head, identical to the Wendigo face that he saw coming through his window as a child. On the third was painted a glyph of the full-bodied Wendigo in white. All three poles stood side by side, like a disheveled fence. Historically, totem poles like this were placed in locations where the Wendigo was believed to have presented itself. They were designed in native culture to protect the living from the dog-like terror during long, dark winters. These events sparked a journey to where things began, or perhaps ended. The notorious gallows, where Swiftrunner took his last breath and finally left the Wendigo behind. We drove out to Fort Saskatchewan on a chilly Alberta winter day, and there was an anticipation that was palpable between both of us. The investigator in me brought a video camera, and it was running and recording about 95% of the visit. If I had learned anything from 20 years of cases, it's that no one is fast enough to reach for a camera when most anomalies happen. Your gear is either running or it isn't, and you either catch it or you don't. The original location had been torn down, with just the gates of Swiftrunner's prison standing as a monument to the history that took place there. Walking through the wooden poles, Matt noticed they depicted a striking resemblance to the pillars in his dreams. This was the first time either of us had been there. Upon exiting the western gate, the place where the body was buried in the snow after the hanging, we came upon a large boulder marked with ash, graffiti and glyphs drawn in the spirit of a First Nations folklore, the head of a raven with a strong, resilient profile facing the morning sunrise. These marked the location of Swiftrunner's final resting place, leaving us with a truly haunting image of the events that preceded us. It wasn't until we got back to Edmonton and played the video that we realized that we had brought home more than we initially thought. Upon approaching the edge of the grounds, a striking sound came from the footage that had not been present when we were on the property. A man screaming was heard loud and clear on playback. We still cannot account for its source. As of early 2020, this journey for us was still unfolding and its mysteries are bringing more questions and answers. However, I have to say, I wouldn't trade this pilgrimage for anything. We've learned to allow rather than to pursue acknowledge the historical significance of all our roots as Albertans, and remind ourselves of just how important that connection truly is. The name Entity Seeker, the name of our company and philosophy, was inspired by a very powerful phrase. At the end of seeking, all is consciousness. This story for us has been and continues to be a visible expression of that mantra. Wow. Thanks to Matt for allowing Morgan to share a few of his dark and unsettling experiences of what might have been Wendigo. Here's part two of our conversation with Wendigo expert, author, and researcher, Chad Lewis. Uh, you recently did a, a, a dark poutine episode on mm-hmm. Vince Lee. Yeah. And it's been debated over the years. I personally... I'm not attached to the idea that this had anything to do with Wendigo at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe chat about that for a little bit so the audience knows, and then we can talk about the Vince Lee case. Yeah, sure. So on the evening of July 30th, 2008, Tim McLean was a 22-year-old Canadian carnival barker, and he was returning home to Winnipeg riding a Greyhound bus, and he was viciously stabbed, beheaded, and cannibalized by another passenger about 18 kilometers west of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. So 
After arriving on scene, RCMP watched for hours as the perpetrator, a man named Vince Lee, 40-year-old, desecrated Tim's body inside the bus after the driver and remaining passengers had fled, and they were powerless to stop the man's frenzy. They couldn't get through to him. They tried to talk to him, and there was no go. Less than a year later, Vince Lee was found not criminally responsible, or NCR here in Canada, for... Tim McLean slaying, but he was held in a Manitoba psychiatric institution from which he was released just over six years later. Yeah. And Nathan Carlson, he had written uh, an article for, I, I believe it, I don't think it was the Edmonton Journal, but it was a news, Chad, you'd know, one of the newspapers that Vince Lee had in his hand within days of that killing happening. And I know Nathan Carlson has has expressed before in interviews and things like that, that he feels like that was the precursor to this going on. What's your opinion on all of that? I think it's very difficult to analyze uh, the case from a, a distance where is it possible that Mr. Lee read this article that uh, Nathan Carlson wrote and it put something in his mind or opened him up for an attack by the Windigo? Certainly possible. Is it possible that he was suffering from a mental illness? It was a coincidence because in some versions of the legend, I've heard that he thought God or someone was speaking to him that this person was a demon rather than you know the Windigo overtaking him and seeing it more as a, a, a bite to eat, if you will. So I don't know. I think it's very difficult to address it from afar, but I think the similarities of it are interesting. The fact that it happened in the cold in Canada is another aspect too. Damn Canada. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, it's such a, it was such a horrifying case when it happened. And I mean, I just, I so felt for the the, the passengers and the people that were trying to contain this guy and whatnot. And just the, the frenzy. I think what struck me about this case though, specifically was the fact that none of the other ear markers were there. You know, we, we hear all the time about the, the rash on the hands and feet or the swelling or whatnot, but I guess we really don't know enough about what happened before that to know if that was even a, a thing. And I think also the the problem is we're analyzing it from literature that we have from the 17, 18, 1900s, where early 1900s and, and that fact that, as I mentioned earlier, I really think that folklore is always moving. It's always changing. So what we know or what we think we might know, and in my opinion, I don't know much about the Wendigo. I really feel like after... <laughs> you know, 20 years of researching it and doing a book on it, I'm still just picking the tip of the iceberg of what's out there. And that it's the most puzzling, baffling, bizarre legend I've ever encountered. So it's possible that the 2000 version of a Wendigo is much different than 1700 version of Wendigo. That is such a good point that the, that the you know, if, if it is a, an entity of some sort, that it, it is evolving because thoughts are being added to it. And what would be in support of that argument as well is the fact that we are getting new descriptions. Like we just talked about the, the amalgamation with the werewolf legend. And now some people I know that I've, I've spoken to have seen it with the, the emaciated body with kind of a dog type head where, you know, if you are adding thought to a thought form that's in existence and is thinking and breathing and, and living and, and whatnot, it would make sense that that thought form is going to become more. 
I think it is shifting. And if any of your listeners today Google Wendigo, most likely the depiction they'll see is some giant, almost half um gray alien alien almost. almost yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. they have these giant antlers or horns on them they might have an elk or a moose face with them which you know the earliest literature did not depict them in that way but today it does where again who am i to say that maybe that's not the way it appears to people now um and again assuming that it's really there in flesh and blood that it's not there in some other capacity. Well, and something to add to that too, and this might be a, a piece uh, from the, the parapsychology world, is that sometimes you will have multiple people witness an apparition. Like say, for example, you know, Uncle Freddy passed away and then Uncle Freddy is seen again in a room with say three different loved ones. And what's interesting is that each loved one often will report saying, yes, absolutely, we saw Uncle Freddy for sure. But each loved one will have a different interpretation of that energy because they're receiving that energy and it's translating differently, almost like the red dress, gold dress that flew around the internet for a while and everybody was fighting because some people were perceiving it as gold, some people were perceiving it as blue, and you know, all hell broke loose. And I kind of wonder if something like that might be going on here where people are going, you know, uh, you know, yes, I saw it. And this is how my body, my senses interpreted this energy. It had antlers or it had a wolf's head or it had it looked like a gray. You and I, I think, share the same passion and love for this area of the research. And totally I couldn't don't. agree with you more <laughs> that um here in Wisconsin, we have a lake that is thought to have a lake monster in it. Um, it borders Wisconsin, Minnesota. There's a $50,000 reward for it. It's called Peppy the Lake Monster. And over the last couple hundred years, there have been two main types of sightings of this thing. One would be of a long, giant eel-like creature, 40 feet long, 12-inch circumference, pretty big. But others see it more as this Loch Ness monster type looking creature with the long neck and the humps. And in my belief, it would be very difficult to believe that there's two unknown monsters in this lake. That I've come to the conclusion that people are either seeing it from different angles or more likely that they're seeing it with different human perception, that they're viewing it different or that it's projecting itself different. So I think that could cross over to the Wendigo that perhaps it's projecting itself or we're seeing it differently than people did 300 years ago, just like we see the entire world differently than they did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because in my in my lectures and my classes, I, I usually bring up the bring up my Python Galen because for me, he is such a, a great example of exactly what we're talking about. You know, people have this idea that their fixed vision of the world is right. It's the right one. And if anybody else sees something different, then they're lying or they're crazy or something like that. And I always bring Galen up because as a ball python, he sees in so many different spectrums, everything from the UV right to the infrared spectrum. And of course, not only can he he taste smell and, and things like that, but he can see thermal imagery 
And what's really neat is that he can actually basically turn his eyes off and then receive thermal imagery through the pits in his lip. And so you could blindfold him and have him do a task and he could still see it. And I always use him as a great example because his version of what he is seeing perceptually in his environment isn't wrong. It's just really different. And I think with paranormal experiences like this, I think we have to start looking at at the fact that we're everybody is going to be perceiving slightly differently. I believe that 100%. I think it's been uh, proven over and over and over. When we look in the UFO field, we may have a carload of people, four people who see a UFO, and they can't even agree on what color the light was that was coming from it. <laughs> yeah. Because they were seeing it in different you know, perceptions of it. So I think that's, for me, it's kind of a proven point at this point that when you talk to people, you're getting their version of events may not necessarily be your version or somebody else's version. Yeah. And, you know, and I think a great example of this is speaking of versions of stories, of course, is the the story that's talked about in relation to this the most, which is Swift Runner. I was um, just going to mention that. Like, I really, really want to talk about Swift Runner. You go, ask away, Mike. Go ahead. I'm like taking up yes. your space. Go ahead. So a little background for people uh, who aren't aware of Swift Runner. He was uh, a well-respected Cree hunter and trapper outside Edmonton in the 1800s. And in the 1870s, his family, uh, as were many others, began to go hungry. Swift Runner turned to alcohol to drown his frustrations, and his personality quickly changed. He also began speaking of encountering Wendigo, an evil cannibalistic spirit spirit that was taunting him. And eventually, he went on to believe that he had become Wendigo. It is probably one of the creepiest cases, <laughs> I think. Is I'm, I agree with you. And the idea of the Swift Runner case is the one that still sends chills down my spine here in Wisconsin on cold winter nights when the breeze kicks in. Because when I went looking for the legend of Swift Runner, just north of your area there in Alberta, um, I wasn't I don't know if I was emotionally prepared for the wallop it was going to hit me with that just going for a decade and a half prior to that, I tried to find everything I could out about Swift Runner, tried to get all the details of his gruesome and gory existence, his death, what happened to the body, all of that. But it didn't sink in until we were in the area where he was at where these crimes were committed, these dastardly deeds, that that's when it finally settled in. And uh, Kevin and I were standing there in the general region of where his winter quarters would have been because we were unable to pinpoint exactly because much of the north of Alberta is wild still today. Without being too specific, can we talk about what it is that he actually ended up doing? Yes. How specific would you like me to be? <laughs> is um, this a family show or? Um, it, well, I don't know. We can, we can edit things. <laughs> let, let me just give you kind of the cliff notes of it. Sure. So Swift Runner in the winter of 1878 into 79, he was about 40 winters old um, at the time. And many believed that he had gone down the wrong path with alcohol, but Morgan, as you and I were just talking about, was it 
because he was drinking alcohol or did the alcohol make him susceptible to the Wendigo? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, did it decrease his shield if for lack of a better term? So anyway, they split up. Uh, He is a swift runner. He's with his mother and his brother and his wife, and they have six children, three boys, three girls, one as young as an infant. And they break into their family pods for the winter and things are going great. Uh, he shoots a couple bear and some a moose and foods uh, everywhere for him. But it's a long winter, as you know, and feeding that many mouths, food doesn't last that long. So then things start to turn where the family starts to become hungry. Eventually, his mother and his brother, he said, uh, even broke off and tried to go somewhere else to find game while Swift Runner and his family were becoming weaker and weaker. And then Swift Runner and his family broke off. He took his oldest son that would not leave without him. And his wife went to look for the mother and brother with the children. Okay, so as the winter progresses, Swift Runner makes it into a local trading post. He asks for provisions. They give him some. He makes it back. It doesn't last very long. And that's when he said he went crazy, that basically he believed the Wendigo had possessed him and he started killing and eating all of his family members, um, eventually outside of his mother and brother, uh, all of his children. And I don't want to get into too much detail again, because again, even if it's not a family show, most people <laughs> won't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, but eventually he's down to just his son who I believe was seven or eight at the, at that time. It wasn't the oldest son. His other son had died of starvation during this turmoil, but uh, he's with his son and his son has already witnessed him killing the mother and the three daughters. And the son has also participated in eating those bodies. And what hit me so hard, what really just changed me that day in Alberta was sitting there trying to put myself in the position of that young boy that here his only protector in the world his father is the one he has to fear and that deep down that young boy had to have known that he was next he watched his father kill the rest of his family why would he think his father would spare him but yet there was nothing he could do it was winter he was in a a starvation mode he couldn't just leave it would have been certain death. So that's what struck me the most is that the what was going through that child's mind when knowing that death was looming for him. Yeah, and I live about 15 minutes from the uh, mission that Swift Runner... <laughs> The Swift Runner actually showed up at uh, when he was claiming that he, his family had succumbed to the cold and whatnot. I don't live very far from there. I'm, I'm on the west end of, of Edmonton. And um, having been up there a number of times, yeah, it is it, it is striking because the original mission, I should tell the audience, the original mission is still there in St. Albert. It's still standing. It's the oldest standing uh, wood structure in Alberta. And uh, it's, it is quite something to uh, to stand on those doorsteps. And you're you're absolutely correct that Swift Runner comes back in the uh, spring when food's out there. And uh, even uh, when he ate his last child, food was available. He was shooting uh, ducks and geese and eating them. So there was no reason. There was a reason to kill his son because that was the only witness to his crimes. 
but yet no reason to eat him, which he did. And even killing him served no effect because then he wanders into town telling this woeful story of his children and family all starving to death in the wilds. And here he is strapping over 200 pounds. And of course, they didn't believe him when they finally encouraged him to take them back to the scene. That's when it was something out of a horror movie where they saw the bones and his pots that were used to uh, cook the skin and the like. And eventually he was brought to the fort there and uh, they built a gallows for him. Uh, he went to court, he was found guilty, and he couldn't believe he was going to be tried and convicted for this because he said, I didn't hurt anyone else's children, I just hurt my own. Why are you punishing me for that? And of course, then he was brought to the gallows and they took his life at the end of a rope. Yeah, and he was Alberta's first legal hanging as well. Yeah, the funny thing is, is it was almost a comedy. If it wasn't so gruesome and sinister, mm -hmm. you could see this as a comedy of sorts where they built the gallows, but it was so cold and hundreds of people had gathered to see this because, as you said, it was the first legitimate hanging that they were so cold they tore down the gallows and used the wood for firewood to stay warm. Yeah, I remember even when uh, when I was looking into the... The, the prison, the prison that they held Swift Runner in was in Fort Saskatchewan. And uh, they, they, they had reports and journals from the guards. And I remember reading that the one guard was reporting that they were hearing him scream bloody murder in his cell, that the Wendigo was coming through his, their, his window or the, the cell window and trying to attack him. Now, I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming you guys probably got a chance to stand in these, these cells as well. But Mike, let me tell you, these little cells are maybe four feet by two to three feet. And oh that's it. It is the most like you want to talk about isolation. These are the tiniest little blocks of, of room. You wouldn't even call it a room. It's a broom closet um, where this guy, six foot four, 200 pound guy was being mm. housed. It was, it's really powerful. It's cruel. Even, you know, regardless of what, what they've done. It's a, it's kind of cruel. Yeah. Well, in the, the Fort Saskatchewan, it's a museum now the, they've rebuilt the, the museum as a, or the, the prison as a, as a museum. The old site is, is sort of marked off with, with barriers, but um, yeah, like you really get a pretty good vibe as to, as to what was, what was going on there. And uh, yeah, it was just, I, for me, it's one of the most interesting true crime cases in, in Canada. What fascinated me was the end of it all, that after all of this horrific acts that Swift Runner did, um, the idea that when his body was cut down from the gallows, nobody really is certain as to what happened from that point on. Many of the staff members that we interviewed at Fort Saskatchewan, um, they believed that his body was simply just dumped on the outskirts of the fort. And the newspaper said that he was buried um, on the outside of the fort, but just kind of laid there and buried with the snow kind of thing. It wasn't like they dug a big hole in the middle of winter and put him in it, but they kind of just threw him over there and said here, because a lot of the indigenous people showed up to see it. They thought they were, he was, he was going to be shot or tomahawked. They had never known what a hanging was. Um, so they showed up and then the body was just kind of dropped there and nobody really knows whether 
they took it or they left it there because at the same time as being intrigued by it and wanting to grab him and cremate him at the same time, it was a Wendigo. They wouldn't want to get close. So a lot of the staff members told us they believed that he was simply dumped on the edge of the fort and left there to rot where, you know, perhaps maybe he was cremated, which is one of the definitive ways to kill a Wendigo is to make sure there's absolutely nothing left of it. Well, Mike, in your, I mean, you, you've done so much work on the the true crime side out of all the, out of all the options that they had uh, of getting rid of him. What, what do you think was the most likely? Do you, do you think they, they just dumped him? Do you think they, they would have buried him? What do you think? Um, I, thought that there was a burial for him um i I can't recall where i read that or heard that but uh i recall that he was at some point buried and i think some of that comes from the idea that the missing records of their graveyard that was moved when construction came through the area but we have to also consider that swift runner was there before it was a prison uh, before they even had people there dying. Uh, uh, so he would have predated by some amount of years their actual burial ground. So I, I don't know. And that's I think that's the most fascinating part is that did they bury him? Um, did they torch him? What would have happened? And the idea that no um, newspaper covered it is a little odd in my estimation because they certainly covered it in great detail prior to that. Why Mm -hmm. wouldn't they have finished the story? But who knows? Yeah, it's interesting that it just sort of ends there because typically there will be uh, a grave, even if it's unmarked, there will be some sort of mention in it that uh, such and such prisoner was buried in a grave at this particular uh, cemetery nearby the prison. But There wasn't anything like that. Also, we have to consider that many of the staff members, when we were there, told us that when people who are open to this sort of thing, whether they're psychic, intuitive, what be it, they feel when they're at the fort, the recreation, that they get a sense that he's there, that his spirit is still there. They can pick up on the sorrow and the dread that is there. which would lead some credibility to the fact that maybe he was buried on the property or that his spirit is somehow attached to it. But most people that tell the, um, the tour guides say that it's not a pleasant experience, that it's not something they like picking up on and that it's a dark type spirit, which would be very fitting for Swift runner. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you a a quick story about when uh, one of the times that I was was up there walking around, we were over by uh, uh, they've got a display where they have the old Red River carts, which is what they used to transport Swift Runner from St. Albert to Fort Saskatchewan. And what was really interesting was that I had my my phone going because I was just I was shooting uh, what Matt was picking up because uh, Matt, who we mentioned in the in the podcast story, he's a the guy is extremely intuitive, and I was filming what he was saying so that we could document everything. And what was interesting was that when I played the audio back, there is a male voice 
on the recording. And it's super clear. There was nobody else around us. It was, again, it was Alberta winter. It was dead quiet. There were no visitors there that day. I mean, we were standing out in basically what's in the middle of a field. And uh, I thought that was really intriguing. And I, I wondered whether we were picking up on some residual energy of the emotional impact that that event had because it was so I think it was so violent for even the guards to listen to I know the the journal entry that we found that was uh was written by one of the one of the officers they were traumatized like nobody wanted to watch him at night or stand guard because he was screaming bloody murder that this thing was 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 trying to get him so I, I thought that was really interesting. I did not expect to pick anything up there. And lo and behold, it was, it was, it was clear as a bell. I think most people would agree with you that we think of these things, whether they're suicides, serial killers, untimely deaths, accidents, mob hits and the like, that they create such energy that they forever curse the area itself. And that if that is true, I, I don't think it's a leap of the imagination to think that if somebody comes by, let's say on the same frequency, if you will, that they can mm-hmm. pick up on that. Yeah. And this was, it was striking to me that, that there was something there because this was also on the original site of the, the museum or the, the prison itself, not the, the replica, which is kind of stationed beside the, the original spot. So I just, I thought that was really Really, really very interesting and something I just I, I just didn't expect. But we have our last four minutes <laughs> with you. So, Chad, I want to give the floor to you and tell the audience what you're up to next, where they can find you. I know you're speaking all the time. I'm, I'm it's, it's crazy. Your schedule is amazing. Um, but tell them like what you're up to, where they can find you and, and give them the scoop. First of all, let me say, I think we did a terrific job. We covered about 10% of the Windigo in an hour, which is <laughs> amazingly good. As I like I said, and Morgan, you and I have talked about this off of the air, is just how complex and huge this legend is. Yeah. And I, I want to spend the last minute I have rather than you know any of my websites in that is that that was one of the biggest things that scared Kevin and I about this book is that we, there were many times in the past we would start it and think we need to do a book on the Windigo and we'd start traveling and then writing and then we'd say, nope, we can't do it. It's just too big. There's no way we could accurately sum it up any form. And then a few years later, you know, it would hit us again. The Windigo would call out to us uh, figuratively, of course. And and so I think I, I was joking a little bit about 10% in one hour, but I think we've done a pretty good job. I agree. <laughs> Me three. You three. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. No, this is, this has been wonderful. And as I, I can't tell the audience enough about this book, because if you want to, to really get into this, 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 it's really the book to, to get it's Wendigo lore monsters, myths, and madness by Chad Lewis and Kevin Lee Nelson. And I, I just I can't recommend it enough because it's it's so comprehensive and it's so well thought out. And so thank you so much for not only just coming on and spending the time with us, but for being our first guest. <laughs> uh, 
Yes, thank you for the honor. Uh, <laughs> so much fun. And again, uh, I love talking about this legend. I think it was my 25th book in the supernatural field in that if I'm ever remembered for anything during my time in this uh, field, that I hope the Wendigo research is up there for what uh, survives when I do not. 25th book? I just had mine published, my first book. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh, two years of grueling work. Well, you're on the path now. Yeah, I guess so. You can't go back. <laughs> oh, hell. You're cursed now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chad. That was awesome. Thanks. Keep an eye out. Thanks, Chad. Thanks again to Chad Lewis for taking time to talk with us about Wendigo and tolerate my newbie questions. You can find more about Chad at chadlewisresearch.com. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called scripting. Have you ever really thought about the life you want or an experience that you want without thinking, yeah, but, or this is just wishful thinking because remember when we would play that game as children, make-believe, and then at some point we were told, well, that's stupid, you're too old for that now. What we're beginning to understand in the field of parapsychology and quantum physics is that we get a reflection of two things, what we focus on and how we feel about what we focus on. One of the most powerful processes that I've used in my life is called scripting. Take your journal or a piece of paper, find a comfortable spot, and begin to write down what you really want to experience. Let it rip. Nothing is too big or too small. It seems a bit like lip service, and you're going to find yourself doubting what you're writing down. Believe me when I say all your yeah buts will start coming to the surface, and maybe even fear of judgment from others. But this exercise is for you. So when those thoughts come up, just let them go gently. When you're writing it down, instead of saying, I wish I had, or it would be nice to have, use language like, I have, or it feels so good now that. Finding the feeling of what you're writing down. And as the positive momentum starts to grow, it will go from generalizations to specifics. Don't get into specifics when you're in doubt, because you'll end up talking yourself out of your dream. Now, when you go about your day, spend time thinking about or finding the feeling of having it now. Take it out of future tense. If you were living how you imagined, how would you be feeling in this moment. Practice it as often as you can, and while it may feel like make-believe at first, you'll soon be amazed at what begins to pop into your physical experience, as what you want begins to take shape right before your eyes. As long as you don't hold yourself apart from it in doubt or in negative thinking, you'll begin to see the unexpected. And remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>